If you would, please turn to the letter to the Hebrews. We'll start at chapter 14, verse 14, and I'll read to 514. Hear the word of the living God. Let me pray for our time. I'm sorry. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity. We hear your word here spoken once again as we heard from Exodus. Now we hear from the letter to the Hebrews. And Father, we ask that you would open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child... But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Once again, as we come to the letter to the Hebrews, we come to a, a sad situation of people who are, who are dull, who are not attending to God's word as they ought, who are not growing in their knowledge of God's word. And it's very sad, as we've said already, it's, it's a very sad thing not to progress in whatever we're involved in. And if you have a career, it's always good to grow in that career. Uh, if you're raising children, it's always good to grow in your ability to raise your children. If your uh, children are going through school, you hope that they can stay up with where they're supposed to be. And yet we, we have a group of people here for some reason, partly because their theology is not right, that they hadn't attended to the word so that they could really divide the truth well, and secondly, because they were tempted to cut corners in order not to suffer for the sake of Christ, a very sad situation. Although they had in the past, the writer says, had already suffered much for the sake of Christ, now they're, they're waning in their 
ability to do what they're supposed to do. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I'd like to look at this passage under the topic of Christ, a superior high priest. And I'd like for us to consider three points. First, that Christ provides superior access. His priesthood provides superior access. Second, that Christ is superior in sympathy, that his sympathy as the high priest is much better than the regular high priest. And finally, our need for a superior response to these truths, our need for a superior response for these truths. So first, Christ provides superior access. Verse 414, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession that Jesus has passed through the heavens to the heavens of heavens where there's no barriers to God on our behalf. Now, even in the world, our regular lives in the world, access is a great privilege and a great joy. When I was, uh, let's see, I was 20 years old, I got to hear Elvis Presley. I saw Elvis Presley in concert. And sometimes you're able to go backstage, but I didn't get that opportunity to go backstage. I sat 10 rows back and I saw his concert a year before he passed. But a friend of mine who lived across the street happened to work at the New Carrollton Sheridan, where Elvis stayed. And on one occasion, he got to be Elvis's valet. And you can probably guess what Elvis said every time my friend did something for him. Thank you very much. And so... Uh, that was a great privilege. He got to actually see and interact with Elvis. He told me a little bit about what that was like. But that's not what everybody gets to do. That was a special privilege. When I was uh, 14 years old, I wasn't a believer yet, and I had the greatest experience of my life at that point in, in many ways. I had very much liked basketball and had become a fan of the basketball player of the Los Angeles Lakers, Jerry West. If you've ever seen the NBA logo, there's a silhouette of him on there. They call him Mr. Logo now. He used to be known as Mr. Clutch. Now he's known as Mr. Logo. And I had heard that the Lakers were going to practice at a local high school. And I was so excited. I mean, this was like a dream come true. And uh, my PE teacher happened to know the basketball coach at this other high school. I said, will you write a letter for me so I can get in? And he did. He wrote a note for me that I might get access to watch the Lakers practice. So I go to the high school, didn't need the letter. I go in and there's Jerry West practicing on the high school floor where my wife went to high school. And that was like, this is the greatest day of my life. And really all I wanted was his, ad- his address. Yeah, right. All I wanted was his autograph. And he was very kind to me, very friendly. He gave me his, his autograph. And my dad says, see if you can get your picture with him. I said, I don't know. He says, try, see, ask. I said, can I get my picture with him? He says, yeah, do you mind if we just go outside? I said, yeah, sure. So my brother and I go out there, and we get our picture together with Jerry West. My brother's on one side, I'm on the other. And that picture was on my dresser for a long time while I lived at home. It wasn't just a regular small picture. It was a five-by-seven that I cherished for a long time. I still have a smaller version. Maybe I'll bring it if you want to see it. But that was like the greatest day of my life, because not everybody gets to do that. And I had this interaction with this person that I really had valued so much. But some places... That that you get access granted to, uh, it depends on what's going on. It depends if there's security. In the old days, you used to go to the Andrews Air Force Base and you can go to the air show. You just drove in, you know, I think a million people would go. And I always enjoyed that, it was a fun trip. I went two years in a row. But over time, because of the situation with our country, I don't even know if they still hold it. 
because of all the security that goes on. Not everybody can go in. It's a secured area. You have to go through checkpoints. But not everybody can enter. But when we think about what Christ has done for us, we get a picture of it in the Old Testament. That in the building of the temple, and as Ed read, all these details and all this beauty was prescribed by God. That Moses was to make everything according to the pattern that he saw. And so that as we read those those details that may have seemed tedious, it's striking how beautiful and how precise it was. And that Moses did it exactly as God wanted. Exactly as God wanted. And eventually there would be a holy place. And then there would be another place called the Holy of Holies. And this was a place that was dangerous. As we read and we heard from Ed at the end there, everything had to be exactly right or you were in danger of death. You were in danger of death because of the holiness of God. That no one can stand before the holiness of God without his prescription. And so everything had to be made right. And all the sacrifices had to be made right. And this is part of what the writer to the Hebrews can't get to. But he touches on some of me. He talks about the fact that Jesus didn't just go into the holy place, which was an event that happened only once a year. Only once a year could somebody go in to the holy of holies. And there had to be so much done in order to do that and in order to do that and live. There was so much preparation that the high priest had to make, we see in the Old Testament. He had to take care of his own sins by the blood. He had to sprinkle blood on other things. Once a year, he would enter this place. It was such a special place, but it was a dangerous place because of the holiness of God. And so when we think about what Jesus has done, he didn't go into the copy of these things. It's, it's, it, it, it's so amazing that he didn't just go into the copies with his own blood. He went into heaven itself. He went into the heavenly realities that Moses just saw a picture of. And he went in there with his own blood, the perfect blood of the lamb without spot or blemish. That's what Jesus did. A place that we couldn't enter. We would be destroyed by the holiness of God. Jesus has gone before us on our behalf. I couldn't help but think as I thought about the Sandifers moving and how I'm sure at some place, because I know Brian is a very uh, courteous person, at some point either Brian or somebody there held the door for somebody said, here, let me open the door for you so you can come in. I'm sure that happens. That's the way it is in moves, right? I, my days of being on the end of pianos going down apartment steps are over. But I know when you have a move, that's often the case. Somebody gets the door for you, maybe they hold it and they stand in front of it so you can get through. But to think that Jesus has done that for us. A glorious place with no more tears, no more sorrows, no more sin. That who, for us who are in Christ, will be ours one day. is an amazing thought. But it's an amazing reality. And so that's where Jesus has gone. So he has better access. As glorious as it might have been to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. How much more so to go into the reality that the Holy of Holies pointed to. And that's what Jesus has done. And that's where Jesus is now. Since we last met last week, nothing has changed. He's still there. He's still perfect. He's still interceding. With nobody to stop him. He's still our advocate. He still loves us. 
And he's still the source of eternal life for anybody who would call upon him. And for those of us who have called upon him already, that he is our source of help even now. So Jesus has has such a greater access than just the high priest. As glorious as it was, as privileged as it was, our Jesus has gone into heaven itself and is there now. And we know from the scriptures that he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And as I was reading the Old Testament this week in Deuteronomy, it's recounting Israel's history, their sins and God's kindnesses. And it was amazing where at one point God says, I went out ahead of you and found places for you to camp. I thought, even there, he's providing places for his people. I'd never, I don't know, I just never caught that phrase before. You remember, they always followed the pillar of fire or the cloud. But he was preparing a place for them even then in the wilderness. And it was sad, I thought, he's so kind. How can we be so ungrateful? Even now, he prepares a place for us. Christ is there now preparing a place for us as we are his people. And so what an incredible, incredible high priest we have in the Lord Jesus. And this is what the writer wants his hearers to get to understand, and for us too. Again, there's that, there's that expansion of what Christ has really done, that cosmic redemption that he's accomplished for us in himself in his obedience and sufferings on our behalf. So Christ provides a superior access, but he also is superior in sympathy. He's superior in sympathy. We see this in verses 4.4 4 and then 5.7 through, I'm sorry, 4.14 and 5.7 uh, through 10. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then 5, 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. At some point, Lord willing, in the future, we'll get more into this mysterious Melchizedek, the priest that seems is different than the Levitical priesthood. But the whole point of these passages we just read is that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. In a sense, he could be a more focused high priest in the sense that he didn't have to take care of his own sins. He bore our sins. But he was perfect and he didn't have to pay for his own sins first. He didn't have to offer up a sacrifice for his own sins. But he pays for our sins. And he could focus on his being a faithful high priest for his people as he would bear our wrath on our behalf. I want to read a, it's a, it's a short, it's not that short, but it's, it's the best thing I've ever read concerning what Christ has done for us. It's a little lengthy, but it's beautiful. It's glorious. It gives us a picture of what Jesus has done, of his sympathy for us. You know, when we think about those cries, those loud cries, I'm not sure what you think about, but all throughout Jesus' life, he's praying. 
He gets a lot of publicity, but he goes off by himself and he prays. At so many junctures of his life, before he chooses the apostles, he goes off and he prays. And we get a lesson there about how important prayer is. And I would say, too, we get a lesson from this passage that sometimes prayer is not so sweet. And what I mean by that is sometimes we're in anguish. We are sad and we're heavy. But we have the same spirit of Christ who cries out, Abba, Father. You know, oftentimes your kids don't call for you if things are going well, right? They're they're having a good old time, but sometimes they're in danger. And they say, Abba, Father. They say, Daddy, Dad, Papa, Mom, whatever. They call out to you because they're in danger. And that's the spirit of sonship. But I'd like to read this, uh, this commentary, this one gentleman, Philip Hughes, I've mentioned before, this glorious uh, commentary he says. This is what he says about Jesus and his prayers. The occasion intended is beyond doubt that of Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where face to face with the awful reality of the cross, he sensed the overwhelming horror of the ordeal that lay before him and besought the Father that, if possible, this cup might be removed from him. Gethsemane saw the concentration of the compassionate anguish of the incarnate Son in the fullness of its intensity. Hitherto, he had never failed to be moved to compassion in the presence of human need and affliction. His weeping at the tomb of Lazarus gave proof of the depth of sympathy with which the sorrows of this world would affect him. And the blind folly of the unconcerned of the populace to whom he had come as deliverer drew from him cries and tears. But now in the garden, the moment has come in his self-identification with mankind to plumb human depravity and fallenness in its very depths as he prepares in all his innocence and purity to submit himself in the place of sinners to the fierceness of God's wrath against the sins of men. This meant an experience incomparable in the horror of its torment, from which his whole being shrank instinctively, but which was inescapable if the purpose of his coming was to be achieved. It is essential to understand the reason for this extremity of anguish. Something infinitely more than fear of physical suffering and death is involved, though it is true that to suffer and die unjustly and ignominy is an experience from which human flesh naturally recoils and a bitter affront to the dignity of the person. But to attribute Christ's distress in the Garden of Gethsemane to fear of a painful execution is hopelessly inadequate. In the annals of human endurance, there are many who, whatever their inward feelings, have faced a cruel end with calmness and courage. To interpret Christ's loud cries and tears as indicating a collapse of his resolution as the hour of Christ arises, not only portrays him as less admirable in this respect, but also is inconsistent with the character of him to whom with one voice the evangelists bear testimony. For the Gospels show us one who is at all times steadfast and intrepid, and not least as he repeatedly informs his disciples that a violent death awaits him in Jerusalem. Christ's way from first to last was the way of the cross. He was the Lamb of God appointed for slaughter. He came to die. This was his supreme purpose of the incarnation. The cross, therefore, was the fulfillment of his mission. 
and he moved onward to it with an inflexible determination. The agony of Christ in Gethsemane was occasioned by something other and deeper than the fear of physical death. For what he faced was not simply a painful death, but also judgment. The judgment of a holy God against sin, our sin, which is the experience of the second death, the disintegrating experience of separation from God. Hence the terrible cry of dereliction from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a real but deeply mysterious manner, which no words of man can explain, the incarnate son, as he hung on the cross, endured the desolating anguish of being torn away from his father. He took our sins, the sins of the whole world, upon himself at Calvary in order that, there might, in order that he might bear our judgment, the righteous for the unrighteous. It then, on the cross, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for our sake, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For this reason, the second death has no power over those who by faith are one with him, who as our sin bearer endured the second death in our place, and for them the first death, which is the death of the body, holds no terror because the bodily resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that they too will rise to everlasting life. The dread with which he approached the cross is explained, as Calvin says, by the fact that in the death that awaited him, he saw the curse of God and the necessity to wrestle with the total sum of human guilt and with the very powers of darkness themselves. The loud cries and tears which accompany Christ's supplication are to be understood then in relation to the indescribable darkness of the horror that he, our high priest, was to pass through as, on the cross, he bore not only the defilement and guilt of the world's sin, but also its judgment. At Gethsemane and at Calvary, we see him enduring our hell so that we might be set free to enter his heaven. That is our Jesus. That is our high priest Jesus. This is what he's done. This is why he can be such a sympathetic high priest. He knows what temptation is like. And the hardest thing about temptation is never giving in. It's never giving in in the sense of personal experience. And he never gave in at any point. But he felt it. He felt the power of temptation. He felt how easily it would have been, but he did not do it. He suffered the pain of rejecting disobedience and accepted the obedience that ultimately led to the cross on our behalf. And so when we read of this, these great cries, he's, he's wanting to do the Father's will. He's wanting to overcome. He wants to be the, the great victor. And he is. And he rose from the dead, and he's at the right hand of the Father now. And he offers us the same succor that we too might overcome sin. Not to give into it, sometimes to alleviate it from us, sometimes to take it away, but sometimes to give us the strength to go right through it. To go right through it so that we can obey him. Our beloved Lord, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, that we might love him too in the same manner. And so that's the superior sympathy that we have in our Lord Jesus, that we need to take to heart, even now, whatever our state of life might be, that that is our Jesus, that is our sympathetic high priest.
And so Christ provides superior access. He is superior in sympathy. And then we see a need for our superior response, our superior response. Verses 5, 11 to 14. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. To distinguish good from evil. This is what the the hearers of this letter lacked. And we all lack this in some measure. We all lack this in some measure. That these people had known the word of God, but now they had become dull. Maybe they had forgotten things. Maybe they didn't look into the details, as we heard as Ed read. These glorious, wonderful details that tell us something about Christ. One of my greatest sorrows at age 64, (laughs) having been a Christian for 47 years, is that I still don't know the Old Testament as well as I could. I want to take time and sit down and just go through the whole Exodus scenario. That all these things are important when I look to Christ. The better I understand that, the better I'll see who Christ is, the better I'll understand the book of the, to the letter of the Hebrews. Because it's all based on scripture. The, the writer has such an extensive understanding. All these little details just pop off the page. But he can't really share them with the people. It would have been in vain. They didn't know what he was talking about. They weren't acquainted with it. They hadn't discerned between good and evil in some sense. And I think if there's a one of the weaknesses of the evangelical community, including myself sometimes, is that we don't expect to go on. We don't know that it's incumbent upon us that God wants us to grow. He wants us to know more about his word. He wants us to know his love better. He wants to know how precise and how beautiful our salvation in Christ is. And some of that comes from reading the Old Testament. And you come back and you hear about Christ, it's like, oh, he's talking about Christ. Wow, how great a salvation. What a wonderful Savior. And that's what we come to as we come to understand the Old Testament and other parts of the New Testament better. I've had conversations with people sometimes who say they're Christians. And we start talking, it's like, that's not Scripture. What are you talking about? I'm having this this conversation, it's like, that's not Scripture. Or they're misquoting Scripture. And I know in my own humility that I know sometimes I forget the details And that's one of the benefits of reading and rereading scripture is that you get the details really sharp in your mind. So you don't become dull because all of these things say something of Christ. They fill out the picture in glorious precision. And so we're supposed to grow. We're supposed to grow in our knowledge. And wherever we are today, this warning is for us to say, Lord, how can I grow here? You know, he... He's for us. He is for us in Christ. And the more we know of Christ, the more we'll know that. We'll see how incredibly for us he is, as we just heard about his sympathetic high priesthood. And so wherever we are, we need to move on. You know, when I, my wife made the point, I was sharing my story about the 117 opportunities. She said, Make, you know, remember now, though, God still loves us. We don't get his smile. In Christ, he loves us, but we want his smile. 
If we want to please our, our Lord, we have to find out what pleases him and to begin to do that by his grace. We don't do it by the law. The law is beautiful. It's perfect. It's the ultimate detection of error device. But it can't make you obey the law. Only the spirit of God in your heart can do that. Only the new birth begins that process. Only the new birth even makes you want to figure out what pleases the Lord. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do this because I know this pleases the Lord. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see now why we're called to be a holy people. We're to be like our older brother. That we should not be ashamed of holiness. Holiness is glorious. It's beautiful. It's everlasting. It's like our God. And so we see in Thessalonians, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. You know, it almost doesn't, it really doesn't matter what circumstances we find ourselves in today. It's like, it's rather, what does God want me to do in these circumstances? What does he want me to do that I can glorify him here? Not do my own will, not succumb to sin, but rather, how can I please him? How can I turn from my own way and do what he wants? And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the glorious, continuous work of sanctification which they call progressive sanctification. Once you come to Christ, you start fresh. You have a new heart. You're on a new road, a road that's against the tide of the world, against the the evil one of this world, and against your own flesh. But you begin to start moving in the opposite direction. You start to be like Christ, wanting to please the Father and to please the Son. And that's what we have in Christ. And that's what the writer wants his hearers to wake up to. This is your Savior. Look at this glorious Savior. Look what he's done. And it takes time. It takes time to think it through. But we have a superior high priest. He is a glorious superior high priest. He's granted us greater access. He's preparing a place for us. He is perfectly sympathetic because he lived in this world yet without sin. And so what else can we do but respond in a better way by God's grace? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, whoever, if you had some way of letting us know, who's the most holy person in the world? That even they would have room to grow because they are not yet made perfect. We're not made perfect until glory. But Father, we ask that by your grace, we might be more and more a people who want to please you like your son did. That we might be willing to suffer for Christ's sake, which is our our calling. It's grace to us not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Not just to suffer, to suffer, but to suffer for his sake. We ask that you would work that in us for your glory, for your son's glory, and for our good. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.